within a bleak and dismal swamp, hidden beneath its murky waters, lies the headquarters of the most sinister villains of all time. The Legion of Doom. Hey, what's up, Lonely? Super happy to have you back, man. It's been a long time. It was really good to hear your voice again, dude. Yeah, so Beastmaster. Let's talk a little bit about Beastmaster. Acting. It's terrible. It's kind of boring. <laughs> terrible editing, terrible sets, everything you said. 100% true. But it's got ferrets, dude. It's got two little ferrets. <laughs> no, I hear you, man. Crawl, which is a movie I will love forever, is... Really boring for a large portion of the movie. So, yeah, dude, I hear you. But I, I was really pleased when you mentioned those creepy monsters that wrap you up with their, like, skin sack arms and dissolved you. I thought those dudes still freak me out a little bit to this day. Anyway, man, great stuff. Peace out. Hey, Lonely Jason here. Glad to hear your podcasting again. So, Beastmaster, it's not the director's fault, the editing things you mentioned, but I, I think I'll contact you, either we do a joint podcast, we're talking back and forth, we record a conversation, or I'll do a separate podcast, because there's way too much to put into messages, Death Man, Deathstalker, yeah, the first one's not very good, the second one is interesting to me, because it's a spoof of the first one. The second one's also directed by Jim Warnowski. I might be pronouncing his name wrong. He's the same guy that did Chopping Mall. In fact, um, the main actor in Death Stalker 2 is, has a minor role in Chopping Mall, which I, I don't have to tell you about Chopping Mall. You know all about that. So, Anyhow, talk to you soon. Hello, and welcome to Camping Without Bears. I am the Lonely Adventurer. Well, it's been another hot minute since I picked up the old podcast-o-matic, but uh, I'm back. I'm trying, trying to keep myself doing it. Um, I had a great conversation with Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast, which I believe I mentioned last episode, uh, but I'm too lazy to go back and confirm that. <laughs> uh, but we looked at a bunch of kind of 80s fantasy movies and, and just had a great conversation about it, but I haven't had time to chop up the audio file we both tend to ramble a little bit <laughs> and so i'm trying to like figure out how to cut out the the bits worth sharing with the larger world but uh even if i fail at that though i just it was i really appreciate the time you, you spent jason and it was really nice just hanging out we should probably organize uh an anchorite hangout that would be kind of cool i mean the purple worm seems to have a good time right sure why not <laughs> all right so What's new? What's new? I am in a bit of uh, setting overload at the moment. I've hit that strange point that I think every uh, game master does where I've laid pretty solid foundations for the two games that I'm running. There's not a lot of work for me to do. It's just kind of maintenance at this point and then reacting and adapting to the, the wrenches that the players inevitably throw into my world but since I've mostly just prepped a bunch of uh, situations rather than plot points it, there's not a lot that they can mess up so of course I am thinking about what are we going to do next which is completely unnecessary because neither one of the games I'm running right now is going to wrap up in the next six months or so so there's no rush but 
you know, you got to feed that addiction, I guess. So my, I got to scratch that itch. And uh, one of my players had mentioned that in my Glaive game, that she really liked how we, the character that replaced Maul the Dwarf, uh, Mulch the Golem or Warforged, but we were calling him a Golem, uh, a lot of his story and his introduction to the to the player characters really tied him to the world and made him a part feel like a living part of that world that he was in and she she expressed that she wanted to kind of get more of that for her own character see more of that in the game rather than just being a rando adventurer who shows up wherever to do whatever uh, and so I've been trying to think about how to do that. It also took me a little while to figure out exactly what she meant. I thought at first she was just wanted to interact more with NPCs and get more role-playing in, but that was it's less about getting more role-playing in and more about becoming a, a, a functioning part of the, of the developing narrative, I guess. Uh, which I suppose we we normally do through play, but to, to have some stakes, I guess, in the world. Um, so we're already chit-chatting a little bit about what we're going to do next. They really like, uh, as they call it, the cylinder world they're in right now, the uh, the science fantasy uh, O'Neill cylinder spaceship that I, I have them exploring. So we will probably stay in that setting. Um, I don't know if we're going to just continue with the characters they have and do some mid-level adventuring, because uh, at the rate they're going, by the time they exhaust the stuff I have kind of laid out in front of them, they'll probably be about sixth, maybe maybe on the border of seventh level. And I don't really like running anything higher than that, even even in a, a cut-down game like Glaive. So I was thinking it would be interesting to run a game where all, each of the characters, they're all from the same place, the same community, and that they have specific ties to it. And I'm trying to figure out a way to make a sandbox where, or a village, I guess, within a sandbox, where as the PCs uh, progress and level up, so too does the village that they are in. Um, I believe I've mentioned this in passing uh, before, but I'm still kind of digging down into how to make this work. Um, so as, as an example, you know, the, the old mill hasn't run properly for donkey's ages because there are kobolds laying or layering in there. And so the village has to take their grain elsewhere to, to be milled. Um, so a, a nice, you know, introductory, bring the group together adventure might be to clear the, the kobolds out of, uh, the mill and then get it operating again and then figuring out some kind of procedures and mechanics for them what does that actually mean for the village um you know what does it does it bring more settlers to the area does it increase the um the stature of the village in the eyes of surrounding communities and things like that and i think it would be really neat to kind of incorporate that but i'm trying i'm not having any luck finding a game or a, or a supplement that really thinks about that sort of kind of strange like it's I, I guess I'm what am I describing like medieval village sim cities I, I guess in a way uh, and I've certainly looked at a bunch of stuff in fact I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in setting overload at the moment uh, I went down the rabbit hole of uh, Bryce's website 10 foot pole uh, reading the best of the best uh uh, adventure module reviews and buying a whole lot of them. Anything that looked like it sounded even slightly like it might touch on the themes or the, the mechanics I'm looking to explore. So I've got a, about a dozen 
different books and PDFs now that I didn't own three weeks ago, and I've read a little bit out of all of them, and I'm feeling completely overwhelmed. Uh, it's like those dreams you have where you're back in school and you didn't do the homework. It's that kind of strange stress <laughs> that I am feeling, but so I'm, I think I'm going to take a step away from them and uh, just see what I can come with, up with on my own and then dig back into them for inspiration as I move forward. What I have been finding very useful is uh, returning to the Nentir Vale, the uh, implied setting for 4th edition Dungeons & Dragons. I, I don't know why... Well, I was about to say I don't know what appeals to me about this place, this setting, but uh, I do know what appeals to me, and, and that's why I have a podcast, and we're going to talk about it. <laughs> um, so I played very little 4th edition. I had mixed feelings about it. Um, it was during a time in my life when I was playing a lot of kind of... So early 2000s, playing a lot of indie games... Um, so I was probably a little snide and judgmental of it, but I also was playing, uh, Warhammer 40,000. So I love me a skirmish game. So I actually really enjoyed the overly complicated, uh, and extremely time consuming combat that we ran. Uh, but I was, you know, uh, odd man out on that, I think. But, uh, it wasn't until recently that I discovered, uh, through some PDFs that I picked up, uh, the, uh, the implied setting of fourth edition that Nentir Vale, uh, which is just a great little sandbox. It's big enough to be mysterious. And I, I know I've said this before uh, a while ago, but it bears, it is worth repeating because there's plenty of information just on the internet about the Nentir Vale, and it's worth looking at. It's a good, if you just want a nice D&D sandbox to mus- muck around in, this place is largely just a big map with a bunch of evocative names on it and maybe a couple lines of text on each but the fourth edition product lines never really explored too much of it uh there were a couple of adventures set in it uh, they're all almost unplayable <laughs> um, but they're there and they have information in them that you, you could use uh actually uh, uh jason alexander on the alexandrian has a remix of keep on the Shadowfell, which was the first uh adventure released for fourth edition and i think i have a pdf of the original version and then the revised version that they released later on and they're they're both unplayable but well no they're not unplayable but obviously but they both require a heck of a lot of work from the DM. But uh, Jason Alexander does a really nice breakdown and kind of a remix. Uh, he's done a lot of remixes of Wizards of the Coast products that just make them so much better. They really should hire that guy to just run. Sorry, Chris Perkins, but you got to go. Uh, we need to get Jason Alexander in there. <laughs> anyway, so I've been returning to the, the Nentir Vale, and it's been um, a strange... Uh, Oasis, a nice little place of calm and comfort to me while I uh, have all these really cool but um, much more complicated OSR sandboxes floating around my head. Uh, and I've also been revisiting the, uh, the campaign building advice in uh, Kenneth Hyatt's uh, The Day After Ragnarok setting which I believe is available for GURPS, Savage Worlds, and Fate, maybe other systems too. I'm not 100% sure. Uh, I won't, I should probably do a review of this at some point. It is one of my favorite settings. I've played a couple of short games in it and would love to play more. It kind of, it just, it just touches on all the things that I love in weird, weird games. But uh, picture, uh, you know, Ragnarok triggered in the end of World War II and the strange atomic uh, magical, uh, apocalypse that that leads to and the kinds of trouble that you can get into during that. But uh, but 
Ken outlines uh, a bunch of different kind of character uh, character sorry uh, campaign styles in here to kind of help you wrap your head around the the weirdness of the world uh, but one that I always liked is is basically what I'm looking to do now he calls the uh, the Phoenix and the sword um, why he calls it that I'm not a hundred percent sure but it doesn't matter sorry I've had a glass of wine so I'm getting a little uh, getting a little punchy and a little slurry apparently uh, a glass of wine I had a jar of wine <laughs> so that's probably several glasses of wine all in one but uh, anyway I've had a pint of wine whatever that means <clears throat> so but basically the, the basic concept of this is that uh, your adventurers are tied to their what would normally just be their home base their village of Hamlet and it's not the moat house a mile away from Hamlet or the temple of elemental evil that is the focus of your game it's the village itself and um making it a better stronger safer place and kind of helping it develop and being a mover and shaker in that community so uh, i'm gonna have to re-read up on this um and see what i come up with so yeah i'm but i feel like that's a whole other podcast yeah we're definitely gonna do a, ra- a day after ragnarok podcast Boop. All right, so we got. Uh, I've got one more calling to get to here, and uh, also, geez, sorry about that noise. It's I just listened back to the last segment, and it sounds like I'm driving my car down the highway with the windows open. Uh, but that was actually just the rain on the roof of the mill building. Uh, we've been having nonstop thunderstorms for the last uh, week or two. A bunch of bands of bad weather moving through the uh, the area. But anyway, yeah. So I've got uh, one more voicemail here from Joe Richter. Let's give that a lesson. Hey, Lonely, I just finished listening to your episode on making 5e combat more deadly, and I really, I thought that hack was really cool, and I definitely, if I do run 5e again, I want to try that out. I I wasn't sure with spells that take attack rolls, like a firebolt or spiritual weapon or something, do those work the same way as melee combat? Because I know you said with saving throws, the spell automatically hits. Uh, it automatically takes effect, I mean. So I didn't know if spells that do attack rolls, if those work like the way in melee, where if you roll a one, it's a miss. If you miss, minimum damage. If you hit, maximum damage. And then I assume a 20 is double damage. Uh, yeah, so... But then, you know, once you started getting in the magic thing, it's just like, yeah, it, it's hard to tinker with all that stuff. And with healing in general, you know, like with the fighter's second wind ability, I don't know, I'm running out of time. Good stuff, peace out. Yeah, the, the Bastion Land hack for 5th edition, uh, although, man, it would work for Pathfinder, too. Uh, no problem. Any version of uh, modern D&D. Uh, it does get a little wiggy as you get into the more complicated mechanics, I guess. Um, you know, that is the the strength and the problem with 5th edition. Everything is nested, so uh, there's not a lot of modularity going on there. But essentially, yeah, if you are making a magical attack that requires a two-hit roll, uh, then it's just like regular combat. Uh, so a critical fail misses uh, a roll under whatever the target number is you need to hit will do minimum damage, uh, a roll above will do maximum damage, and on a natural 20 you do both maximum damage plus minimum damage. Um, as far as spells go that um, you don't roll to hit with, that just say... Um, you know, make a dex check or a wisdom check for half damage, those kinds of spells. Um, 
I would probably say take half of the maximum damage. That would be my guess. And then a lot of spells are unaffected, like Sleep and Grease. Uh, kind of more utilitarian spells. Obviously, things like Knock and Sense Magic, those are obviously not affected either. And when it comes to things like the Fighter's um, uh, Healing Surge, uh, no, not called the Healing Surge, but Action Surge, is that what it was? I'm, I'm blanking on it, of course, even though you just said it. Uh, the thing that lets them get some hit points back as a uh, bonus action, uh, I would say just let them get maximum hit points back. There was it? You roll their a hit die, so it's a d10, so just they get 10 plus con in hit points back, which sounds extremely generous, but when you are whittling them down, um, they're going to need it. And I would say the same thing with healing, too. Just figure out what the maximum for healing is. Uh, I suppose you could have the cleric make a roll if it's an in-combat situation. Have the cleric make a kind of a casting roll on that, and if uh, uh, they succeed, they they you know they do the, the maximum amount of healing, and if they with it they still get to do the minimum amount of healing i'm not sure i it, it's one of those things where like i it, it feels like these uh blog posts were the seed of a really great idea but they it definitely needs um a lot more fleshing out to be something you could just open up at the table and, and make work but uh i might just do that we'll see uh if our, our next game ends up being fifth edition i am definitely pushing for this although my wife is still uh not sold on it uh we we had our first glaive get together actually actually i can't believe I didn't talk about this already. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, we like everyone else, we've been remote for the last couple of months. And most of the group decided to get together uh, in person at a distance uh, at a local park. And we all sat ourselves eight to ten feet away from each other at our lawn chairs, a couple of snuck in a couple of beers uh, and just hung out for about three hours. And it was it was so good. <laughs> it was so good. I never thought, as someone who, who enjoys time by themselves and who kind of lives a solitary life, uh, I've, man, human contact, it's so important. <laughs> and it was really uh, energizing and just, just good to see my friends again uh, in person. So uh, I'm looking forward to the days when we can just do that whenever we want. But uh, I tell you, certainly not taking it for granted these days. Um, so anyway, uh, we might be playing Glaive again in our next game, but we might also be playing 5th edition. And I mentioned these uh, the Bastion Land hack, and uh, some of them seemed super into it. Others had no idea what I was talking about because they've never played uh, a role-playing game that wasn't uh, BX or Glaive. So <laughs> we'll see. All right, I am rambling and I'm windowing out here. So we're going to call it, uh, I guess, next episode is probably a day after Ragnarok review, huh? I guess. I think I committed myself to that. All right. Well, Lonely Adventurer out.